Genesis chapter 40 is where we will be this evening. So I'd like to invite you to turn there in your Bibles with me. Genesis chapter 40. Suppose that a major motion picture company approached you and wanted you to write a script for a movie. And they gave you the beginning and the end of the movie. And you had to determine uh, the plot and, and, uh, and what all is going to take place throughout the movie. The beginning of the movie was going to be Genesis 37, and that is that Joseph would be sold by his brothers and uh, into slavery into Egypt, and the end of the movie would be Joseph reigning over Egypt. And so your job is to, to fill in the middle. Okay, so how do you get Joseph from a place of slavery to ruler, from slave to ruler? How, how do you get him from that place? There's all sorts of ways in which we could get him to be the ruler, couldn't we? Uh, we could have his brothers be sorrowful for their sin against their brother and come and, and shoot up the whole town and, and save him and bring him back to Israel or, or force, forcibly bring him to a place of leadership. Or we could have an earthquake happen while Joseph was in prison or in slavery and have the shackles fall off and him... Uh, miraculously removed from the prison and, and uh, moved to a place of power. Uh, we could have Joseph trick his way out of prison. He could, uh, he could uh, maybe uh, uh, be involved with Potiphar's wife as she desired. There's lots of different ways that we could get Joseph to, to, uh, to a place of leadership. And that's the way that a lot of rulers really come into, if we think about it from a purely human perspective, how rulers come into their position of power, and that is through sometimes sheer force. They just have strong armies. Sometimes it's through wisdom. Sometimes it's, it's, uh, it's just through their skill or desire. And so I'm sure if, if we were to have to write that script to get Joseph from slavery to leadership, then we may all have a different, a different way of writing that script. But I'm pretty sure that not one of us, if we didn't know this story, would come up with the way that God chose. I'm pretty sure that not one of us would say that Joseph comes to a place of ruling through service. Through unnoticed service through trusting in God and His promises. I mean, would you ever have written a story where a person's rise to power was through simply trusting God? And the pathway to true greatness is through service. And I think we could say the same thing about the life of Christ, couldn't we? I mean, who would have written a story like that? I mean, why would Christ humble Himself to the point where He became obedient even to death on the cross. He comes to a place of greatness. Obviously, you understand He was great before that, but, but really the thing that we praise Him the most for it was, was His greatest humiliation, the cross. And we could say the same thing about our own lives as Christians, that our pathway to true greatness is through often unnoticed service. Let's read this passage it's a bit longer. Uh, passage verses one through twenty-three, chapter forty, to see um, 
this truth unfold for us. Joseph, now in prison, able to interpret these dreams and and um, and then ends up being forgotten. Genesis chapter 40, I'll begin reading in verse 1. This is the Word of God. Then it came about after these things, the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was furious with these with his two officials, the cupbearer and the chief baker. So he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard in the jail, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. The captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them and he took care of them and they were in confinement for some time. And then the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt who were confined in jail both had a dream the same night, each man with his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning and observed them, behold, they were dejected. He asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in confinement in his master's house, Why are your faces so sad today? And they said to him, We have had a dream, and there is no one to interpret it. And then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, behold, there was a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. And as it was budding, its blossoms came out, and its clusters produced ripe grapes. Now Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, so I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation of it. Three branches are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand according to your former custom when you were his cupbearer. Only keep me in mind when it goes well with you. And please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For I was in fact kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews. And even here I have done nothing that they should have put me into the dungeon. When the chief baker saw that he had interpreted Favorably, He said to Joseph, I also saw in my dream, and behold, there were three baskets of white bread on my head. And in the top basket, there were some of all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, and the birds were eating them out of the basket of my head. And then Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and will hang you on a tree and the birds will eat your flesh off you. Thus it came about on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his office, and he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, just as Joseph had interpreted to them, Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. This passage really, I think, can be broken down into two parts. Verses 1-22, through God's people often do acts of unnoticed service. God's people often do acts of unnoticed service. And then verse 23, those 
acts awful, uh, I should say the first part is God's people often do acts of service and then verse 23 those acts are often often go without notice so first God's people often perform, perform great acts of service to God verses 1 through 22 we begin this passage by seeing that Joseph is suffering unjustly he is in the prison Remember, the last part of chapter 39 ended this way. Let me read that for you. Chapter 39, verse 19. Now, when his master heard the words of his wife, Potiphar and Potiphar's wife, which she spoke to him, saying, This is what your slave did to me. His anger burned. And so Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in jail. So Joseph now is in prison, and we want, may want to paint the picture as if this is something very nice, as if Joseph's enjoying himself down there, because he so trusts in the sovereignty of God that he's just always smiling. But I don't think that's the case at all. Okay, This is real life, and real life is not all about big smiles and happy thoughts all the time, right? There are often griefs and troubles that we have to bear, and, and Joseph is bearing that. And I, I say this is unjust suffering for two reasons. Number one, forgive the sarcasm, it's prison. Okay, This is not a vacation or a resort for Joseph. It's prison. And the second reason is because of verse 14. I know that he's suffering and does not want to be there because of verse 14. Only keep me in mind, he says to the cupbearer, when it goes well with you, and please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. Okay, that doesn't show that Joseph was discontent or with his circumstances necessarily, but he recognized that this wasn't the best place to be. He wanted to be out. And so this is unjust suffering on the part of Joseph. Remember in verse 15 he says, I'm not supposed to be here. Okay, I was a victim. I was uh, given away. I used to be in the land of the Hebrews, but I was sold away. And then even the reason I'm in this dungeon is not right. There's no reason for me to be here. If I were put on trial, I would be freed. If I were put on a proper sort of trial. Notice the location of this prison. It's, it's, actually, the, it's actually governed by verse 40. Uh, verse 1, excuse me. Uh, verse 3, skip down to verse 3. So he put them in confinement, notice, in the house of the captain of the bodyguard. So who's governing over this prison? The captain of the bodyguard. Do you remember who the captain of the bodyguard is? Look back to chapter 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard. Okay, so this is actually probably Potiphar's main responsibility for Pharaoh. That his responsibility was to be the what we would call a governor, okay, the person who's in, over the warden of the prison. Okay, the warden would probably be similar to what in this passage is called the chief jailer. But the person who's over the warden apparently is this captain of the bodyguard, Potiphar. So that when Joseph allegedly or apparently sins before Potiphar. Potiphar puts him in his own prison. This is probably a nicer prison than, than a commoner's prison, but still prison. Okay? 
And this is where all the chief officials would be sent. Remember, now you have Joseph in there who was pretty high-ranking before he went into prison. And then the chief cupbearer and the chief baker are both high-ranking people as well. Notice they join him uh, in verses 1-4 through four because they had offended the king. The end of verse 1 says, "...the cupbearer and the baker uh, for the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt." This word offended tells us about their crime. This word offended is the same word that's used in chapter 39, verse 9. Would you turn back there with me? Chapter 39, verse 9. Do you remember Joseph when he, he's there in the house alone with Potiphar's wife and she says, come lie with me. No one's around. No one's going to know about it. And what was his response? Remember this great question that he asked at the end of the verse? How then could I do this great evil and sin against God. Okay, there's no offend in there in our English language, but actually the word, the two words sin against are translated from the Hebrew word which means offended. So the Hebrew word for sin against here in verse 9 and the Hebrew word for offend in chapter 40 verse 1 are one and the same. So that we could put in this text, how then could I do this great evil and offend God? Okay, so back to chapter 40, verse 1. These two men are apparently guilty. They have done something that they have sinned against Pharaoh in some way. And the result is that they are put into prison. Notice the identity of these two prisoners. Verse 1, they're called the cupbearer and the baker. Cupbearer could have simply been a servant who served Pharaoh his drinks. And then the baker is the one who served him his food. Or it could have been, and I'm not exactly sure where to come down on this, uh, just to be frank with you, it could have been a royal taster, that the cupbearer had the responsibility of not only serving him, but actually tasting his drinks for him. Why would he need to do that? And Pharaoh, as the king of Egypt, is in a high position, in in a coveted position of power, and may be uh, the object of attack. And so, uh, as you know, in those days, they would have tasters who would taste to make sure that these things are not poison. So that very well could be what the job was of the cupbearer. And uh, so it's not exactly clear what specifically they did, um, but whatever the case, they offended Pharaoh, and he was furious, as it says in verse 2. So... God's people may suffer unjustly as Joseph does. You have three people here in prison and what we should see is the contrast between Joseph and these two prisoners who apparently did the crime. Joseph is in there alongside of them and didn't do anything worthy of imprisonment. God's people may suffer unjustly. Second thing we see in verses 5-7 through is that God's people, godly people, are given providential opportunities. Godly people are given providential opportunities. That is, God provides opportunities for His children. He provides them with providential circumstances that will advance them or at the very least advance His name. And this is where we find out about the dreams in verse 5. And as you know, in the ancient Near East, dreams were often thought to tell the future 
And so when people would have dreams, they would go to professional interpreters. This job of being a professional dream interpreter became really started to become more and more popular as these dreams and people started to think in these terms that my dream actually means something. And here it actually did. And so with the chief cupbearer and the chief baker now in prison, they're distraught. Why? Because there are no interpreters around. Isn't that what they say? When Joseph says, what's wrong? Right? Why the, why the long face? Verse 7. Verse 8. Then they said to him, we have had a dream and there is no one to interpret it. The common practice for them probably was they would find a, a professional who could interpret such a dream. And so they are dejected. And um, in fact, this is the very same practice that, that um, Pharaoh has in chapter 41. You, you want to look ahead there? With me, chapter 41, verse 8. Now in the morning, Pharaoh's spirit was troubled, so he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men, and Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. So this is a common practice, particularly among those who had the money to pay these sorts of people, and certainly Pharaoh did. And so they are dejected in the prison because they can't have their dreams Interpreted. So God's people are given providential opportunities to display His glory. Number three, godly people recognize the source of wisdom. Look at verse 8. After, after they said, we had a dream and there's no one to interpret it, Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Godly people trust God's wisdom. Here, here's what... Would, um, uh, I'm sorry, godly people recognize the source of wisdom. This would have been a great opportunity for Joseph to uh, embellish his ability, especially when he gets the opportunity to go before Pharaoh. We know that's going to happen in chapter 41. He would be able to go up there and Pharaoh said, hey, I heard you've interpreted some dreams. And Joseph could have said, yeah, I'm really good at that. But instead, he says, no. These dreams come from God. Tell it to me. The interpretations come from God. Tell it to me. Instead of trusting in his own wisdom and giving himself an opportunity to advance personally, he trusts God. And that's really a great trait that we often see in the life of Joseph, that he trusts God all the way. Godly people recognize the source of wisdom. And then in verse 8 as well, godly people trust God's wisdom. And that's why he says at the end of the verse, do not interpretations belong to God? He trusts that God is the source of wisdom. And then here's how he responds. Tell it to me, please. Instead of saying, you go talk to God, tell it to me. I'm a conduit of God's grace. And I'll be able to help you with your dream. Joseph knew that he would be able to give a proper interpretation. You know why? Because Joseph had a dream before himself, didn't he? He had two, in fact. And God gave him the proper interpretation of those dreams. His brothers even recognized the right interpretation of them. This is how God works. He reminds us of His former grace to us. David knew that he could kill Goliath. Why? You remember why? What did he kill before? When he was all alone... Killed a lion and a bear. 
And if you're going to stand and defy my God, I know that you're not going to live. By faith, he trusted that God would give him the victory. When we see God work, our faith increases so that the next time we have an opportunity for these providential circumstances to come along and us and for us to express our faith, we, we take that opportunity because we remembered God worked there and I know He's going to work here. I know He has the power to work. Don't interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. God's people, godly people, trust God's wisdom. Number five, godly people are used by God as conduits of His revelation. Godly people are used by God as conduits of His revelation. Verses 9 through 15, He has He reveals what the dream means. Uh, specifically, 9 through 13. Excuse me, 9 through 13. He reveals the good part of the dream, the good dream that is. And then verses 16 to 19, He re- reveals the bad dream. The first dream is a vine with three branches where these branches bud and produce grapes, and the chief cupbearer grabs the grapes off of there, squeezes them into the cup, passes the cup off to Pharaoh. And Joseph says, I know what that is. God has told me. He's revealed it to me, and I'm going to reveal it to you. I'm a conduit of God's revelation. He's trying to tell you something. And here's the revelation that, that you need to hear. That those... Three branches are three days, and in three days, your head will be lifted up. You're going to be restored. And you're going to put Pharaoh's cup into his hand, just as you did before. Your job as chief cupbearer is going to be given back to you. The second dream in verses 16-19 through 19 is we have these three baskets of white bread on the chief baker's head, and in the top of the basket there was food. There was food in there for Pharaoh, and birds were eating food out of the basket. Joseph gives the interpretation that the three baskets are what? Three days. And you're also going to be lifted up. You're going to be brought out of this prison, but you're actually going to be hung. And you're going to be eaten by carrion birds. They're going to eat your flesh. Joseph is a conduit of God's revelation to these two men. He is an instrument in God's hand to tell them what God wants them to hear. Now, we can't interpret dreams in our day, but we can be conduits of God's revelation, can we not? We can tell people, we can be heralds, right? Just like the the heralds would do for kings back in the days, the old days where... They would pull out the scroll. It says, thus says the king. This is what we say when we tell people about the Word of God. We don't say, do you want to believe this? Was this acceptable to your thinking? We say, thus says the Lord. This is God talking to you through me. And the reason I know that is because I know this is His Word. I have experienced His power through His Word. I've read His Word. I know what it means. Now I'm coming to you with God's message to you that if you do not repent, you're going to die. 
and your sins. God's people are used by God as conduits of its revelation. Number six, godly people do not passively sit around and wait for God to work. God's people or godly people do not passively sit around and wait for God to work. Verses 14 and 15. They recognize something that Joseph recognized, which is very important, that God uses means to bring about good. Let's read verse 14 and verse 15. Only keep me in mind, he says to the chief cupbearer, when it goes well with you. When it goes well. I know this dream is going to come true, that this interpretation is right. And then he says, and please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For I was in fact kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing that they should have put me into the dungeon. Godly people do not passively sit down, sit, sit by and wait for God to, to work. They recognize that the way God works is through means. And so they trust God while looking to the means that He could use. Okay, we do this every day when we put food into our mouths. God's purpose for you and your health is to continue to live and grow. And the means by which He uses, by which He accomplishes that, is through food. You keep eating. We don't just sit by passively and say, I'm not going to eat breakfast, lunch, or dinner today, and I'm going to expect God to keep my body healthy. How long could that go on before our bodies start to to degenerate, to die, to give up? How long would that go on? Not very, right? And so we recognize God works through means. He's not going to come and spoon-feed us, but He accomplishes His purposes through means. There's nothing that is untrusting about that. We're not saying, God, I don't trust You. I'm going to get healthy my own way. No, I'm going to use the means that You've provided. And I would say the same thing is true with regard to the spiritual life. God provides providential opportunities and then we jump on those. We look for those means. I could give you example after example with regard to our evangelism, with regard to our spiritual growth. I think you can see the point there. People don't just come to Christ just magically. God uses means. He uses people to go to that person, give them the Word, talk to them about the Scriptures, approach them, challenge them. And your spiritual growth, you don't just grow spiritually, just boom, automatically, do you? Neither do I. We have to use the means that God's God has given us the Word, prayer, fellowship. This is what Joseph does. He doesn't passively sit by and say, God, zap me. Get me out of here. I know you can do that. And God could do that, certainly. But a great way to display our trust in God is by using the means that He's provided. And so Joseph does that. And then... Number seven, godly people see the fruit of their service. When God's people perform great acts of service, they often see the fruit of it. Verses 20 through 22. Joseph was able to find out that these dreams did, in fact, come as he had interpreted, come true as he had interpreted them. That 
the chief cupbearer was restored to a place of service to the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. And the chief baker was also lifted up, but not restored, but rather hung. And so godly people are able to see the fruit of their service. Joseph was able to see that, you know what? God is, is graciously working through me. I have become a conduit of His revelation. I'm happy to be of service to Him. I'm happy to see that God is working and see this fulfilled as God had, had given this dream to them. So, godly people often perform great acts of service, verses 1-22, through 22, and here's the shocking part, verse 23. The godly acts of God's people often go without notice. The godly acts of godly people often go without notice. Read verse 23 with me or follow along as I read it. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. In this verse, Moses records for us two times that he was forgotten. He records it first by saying, the chief cupbearer did not remember him. And then he says right after that, but forgot him. And the emphasis is meant to, or the repetition is there to provide an emphasis for us. To say this is, this is the nature of following God sometimes, that we get forgotten. We do acts of service for God, and from a human perspective, we go with, our, our service goes without notice. People don't come up to us and say, great job, or remember us like the cupbearer was supposed to do. And do you know how long Joseph had to wait before he finally was remembered? Look at the next verse. Verse 1 of chapter 41. Now it happened at the end of two full years. What could those two years have been like for Joseph? I think there's every time, ever any time for doubt, despair, discouragement, frustration. I would think so. Remember, Joseph's not perfect. His response may have been very similar to Job's response when he had everything taken from him. There seems to be some parallels here between Potiphar's house and Potiphar's prison. In both places, in Potiphar's house and prison, Joseph was unjustly sent there. In both places, Joseph rises to a place of prominence where he is unsupervised with his responsibility, put in charge over the whole facility. In both places, Joseph comes to a crossroad in Potiphar's house when he is tempted by his wife, and then in the prison when he has the opportunity to interpret these dreams. And then in both places, Joseph shows that his loyalty is ultimately to God and that he ultimately trusts in God and His Word. So we have some recurring themes in the last two chapters. But what is the point of this chapter? Who's the hero here? Are we supposed to put Joseph upon a, a pedestal? Why, why is this put here? Simply to just tell us the in-between story between the time when Joseph is put into prison and the time he comes to a place of rule. I mean, how foolish 
is Joseph from a secular perspective? What would the world think of Joseph? Really, Joseph? How's that whole virtue thing working out for you? I mean, you had the road to success success paved very cleanly and purely, and it was unobstructed. You had your road paved for you. But you had to stick to your guns. This thing about virtue, Joseph, how's that working out for you? I mean, you tell your brothers the future that God revealed to you and they're ready to kill you. They end up selling you into slavery. Joseph, where is your God? Where is He in all this? And then you stick to your supposed moral code that's been set up for you by your God that you serve. How'd that work out for you, Joseph? How'd it work out for you in Pharaoh's house? You ended up in prison. That's success. That's what God calls success for you. Where is your God, Joseph? Where's your God? Have you been there? Do you sense the cynical tone from the world around you because of the sometimes stupid looking faith that you have? That you trust in an old, ancient, outdated book? that doesn't have, as they would say, any relevance for today? Do you ever feel that? I mean, why do you go to church so often? Why do you spend so much time reading these ancient words that have no relevance for you? Why do you stick to an outdated moral code? Why can't you bend the truth just once? Even if it means getting someone else hurt. It's okay to do it every once in a while as long as you're, you're, you're doing it for the ultimate good to advance yourself or, or to get ahead a little. How, how's that whole thing working out for you? I mean, how's that working out at your job? You're stuck in the same position that you've been in for 10 years. You're not advancing. And the clear reason is because you're not willing to give up your Sundays to worship. Instead, you or to just come and work. Instead, you have to go worship. I mean, you could do a lot more here at this work. You could advance a lot farther and quicker if you would just give that up. I mean, look at your life. How's it working out for you? You've done all these great acts of service. What is, what is the thanks that you get? Where is your God? Where is your God? Have you been there? How do we handle such a situation? I think the answer is found in the point of the story. And the point of the story is this. The pathway to greatness is often through unnoticed service. When someone challenges your service for God, suggesting that it goes unrewarded as it appears in this lifetime, or when you're tempted to think that God doesn't care about your faithfulness to Him, your response ought to be twofold. Number one, I trust that God's way is best. God knows. And so I'm going to follow God. Number two, my act of service is done out of a love for God. God's way is best, and my act of service is done out of love or, we could say, worship 
to God. My act of service is not done in order to receive rewards from God primarily. That's not my main motivation. My main motivation is to give to God a little bit back from what He has given to me. And so that means I trust Him even when I don't fully understand all the bad circumstances that are happening and all the good circumstances that are happening. And what's true about Joseph is true about you. And that is that the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with Joseph and He caused him to prosper. Chapter 39, verses 21 and 23. The Lord was with Joseph and He caused him to prosper. He prospered by moving his way up in Pharaoh's house. He prospered by moving his way up in Pharaoh's prison. And as we saw last week, He also prospered by putting his faith in God even in the midst of temptation. What I would suggest to you is that you have God on your side and that you will prosper. Maybe not get some great job. may may not happen in this lifetime even. You may see some signs of it like Joseph did. You, you know this verses 20-22 through 22 where he sees the interpretation of the dreams fulfilled. Maybe you only see that, but you don't actually get to see a place where you have reconciliation with your family fully. Have this person come to Christ that you've been praying about. Have uh, all of these rewards that you're looking for on this earth. Because ultimately, we don't live for rewards on this earth, do we? Our great rewards are stored up for us in heaven. So we trust God even when we don't understand. Let me give you three points of application in closing here. It will help us, I think, take this passage and apply it to our lives. Number one, don't second-guess your obedience to God. Don't second-guess your obedience to God. In other words, don't ever regret that you obeyed God. There are some difficult choices that you have to make in the Christian life. There are hard, right choices that often have to be made. And there is a battle going on within your heart and within mine every single day. Because as the deacons and I were talking earlier, there is a war going on in your soul, is there not? And that war will not stop in this lifetime because sin resides in your heart. Sin resides in my heart. We can't get away from sin. Sin is going to follow us wherever we go. So our response needs to be one of obedience to God. And when we follow God in acts of obedience, don't regret it. You may not see the immediate result of it. You may not see the exact results you want to see of it. But but don't regret it. Don't second-guess your obedience to God. That's part of trusting in Him. And that leads us to the second point of application, and that is it always must come back to faith. Do you believe God? Are you willing to trust God and His ways over your schemes and ideas? There's lots of ways that we could have written this story if we were the author, but we're not. This story and this story and your story. You would write it a lot differently, wouldn't you? 
But we're not God. We're not the author ultimately. And so it comes back to, to faith. And faith is trusting in God and His promises, His ways over our own. But wait a second, God, I'm too old to have children. I mean, my husband's 100 years old, 99. And you're saying I'm going to have a child? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Mary, how will this, how will this Jesus come into my womb if I've never had a relation with a man? There's nothing impossible with God. With man, all things are impossible. With God, they are not. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. He's going to overshadow you. And you will conceive. God, how am I going to get to a place where I rule over my brothers? Like you told me I would in my dreams. How am I going to get there? Just trust me. I have the whole path laid out. It may not be like you want it to be. It may not be how you would draw it up, but it is how I drew it up. And I'm going to accomplish my purpose through you, through the good and through the bad. What I need from you is for you to simply trust me. It always comes back to faith. Number three, God has your best in mind. God has your best in mind. As we have been seeing in the life of the patriarch, God is on our side. And I love saying that. I love thinking about that. I hope you don't ever tire of hearing about that. That God is on your side. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Do you see that in Joseph's life? Do you see that God was on his side? Do you see that in your life? You don't... With Joseph, we know how the whole story plays out. And we at the end say, yes! Great! It came... It came to the place where we like to see it. Success. But I just don't see that happening in my life. Do you ever think Joseph ever questioned it? In these two years, he's sitting in prison, forgotten about. Of course he did. God is on your side, and that's what you have to keep in mind even when you don't know the rest of your story. You may be forgotten by people. You may go have lots of acts of service that go unnoticed, but that's okay. Because God hasn't forgotten you. And while it's striking to read that last verse, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. What should automatically come in our minds is that but God did not forget him. And like the rest of the patriarchs, Noah, Abraham... God remembered Noah and his covenant to him. God remembered Abraham. And as we'll see here, God's going to remember Joseph, not forget about him. And when it's talking about God remember, it's not that, oh, I forgot. And now, oh yeah, I have this person down here I need to take care of. No, it is God calls to, to a place of action. He brings his thoughts to a place of action with regard to that person. And this is what he's doing with you. He hasn't forgotten about you. He hasn't gone on vacation or taking a rest. 
He remembers what He's planned to do in you and He will continue it all the way till the end. Do you trust Him in that? Can you trust Him in that? Don't second-guess your obedience to God. It always comes back to faith. God has your best in mind. The pathway to true spiritual greatness often goes through unnoticed service. Are you willing to serve God even when it goes unnoticed? Are you willing to trust Him even when you don't know the rest of the story? Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can count on You. That You are like the immovable rock. So we plan ourselves firmly into Your foundation so that we do not get tossed here and there by every wind and wave of doctrine, but strongly lean on Your Word like the psalmist did. When even through affliction, He grew to love Your Word more. Lord, we feel at times like we're in the position that Joseph is in mistreated, unhelped, alone, and even forgotten. But we're thankful that we have promises from Your Word that we are not forgotten. We're not alone. We're not the only ones here struggling against sin and the consequences of it. There certainly are people even in this room, this church membership, this state, this country, this world, who are struggling against the same things, against flesh and uh, not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. And we need You. Help us to stand firm. May we not sit passively by and wait for You to zap us, but to use the means that You've appointed to accomplish your purpose in our life. We're thankful that we can see your hand at work. Thankful for times of encouragement when you remind us of your grace. Thankful for your word that strengthens us. We're thankful for your people who encourage us. May you continue to help us and make us conduits of your revelation to unbelievers and to even each other, each of us here, believers alike. I want to be conduits of your revelation to help speak truth to one another as we ought to. We need it ourselves. We need to share it with others. May you help us to do that, Lord. We love You. We want to express our love to You showing our love to others and by obeying You. May we not second-guess our trust and obedience in You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.